Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. everybody and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolfork. I am having the wonderful privilege this morning and now so are you of talking today with a fantastic bookmaker, printmaker, designer, commercial artist, teacher, E. Bond. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. This is really wonderful for me because your work is so engaging and so grabbing, visually arresting, right? And this, for me, at least, it makes me pause when I see it. And so one of the things I wanted to get started with was how do you get started? I know it must be different for the commercial artist versus your own practices. What's the first thing you do when you sit down and say, you know, I want to make a print. I want to design a journal. How do you do that? One, I love beginnings because the beginnings are full of possibilities and full of questions. And for me, that's where the joy and the spark is. I'm kind of one of those artists that the end isn't really that big a deal, but it's like what kind of happens in between A to Z. It's always just a question. It's always something that I'm kind of interested in where I'm like, well, I wonder what or how did they? And then it just kind of spirals on. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and reading is such a big part of that for me because I always am trying to figure out, well, well, where would I get an answer or where would I get another question? And usually that's from reading somebody else's something. And the way that you're able to in reading, and I remember you were talking about this for your creative bug class, that you want us to connect words and images. You wanted people to have and build a different relationship. I wanted to think about something you just said, because I remember in one of the prints that I saw that you had in your in your collection, it says, ask better questions. Like, how can we ask better questions? That's also even before the asking, right? Is like, how can we even as like singularly, but also as a society, like ask better questions? Because I think sometimes the root of the problem is that we're not asking quite the right thing. These, I thought, were just such beautiful layering. Some of them feel very much like collage. Yeah. And then others feel much more broad and like just one singular image that gets expansive. How do you decide on scale or intensity? Do you decide that ahead of time? Or is it something that you look at the whole piece and you're like, this is great. Or this is, oh, this is so great. I can just use a quarter of it. How do you make that distinction? It's so funny. Yeah, a lot of those decisions don't happen before. You know, so for me, again, I have these in terms of process. To me, the creation process is very different from the editing process. And I try to never let those two cross. I feel like they're different worlds. They need to be in different rooms and they need to be kind to one another. So creation for me is just creation. It's play. It's so much fun. It's whatever happens kind of happens. And then given whatever the set of goals are, say, for that project, then the editor walks in the room and then says, 
hey, okay, this is supposed to be a poster or this is supposed to be fabric or whatever. And then we can look at it from that point of view. But I think in the beginning, you have to allow the space just to make. Yes. And I think that's what's so hard for people because we we let the editor in the room way too soon and the critic. And I'm like, no, I'm not having that. You got to wait your turn. <laughs> I really like that. I like the way that you have the creative, the creator, you have the editor, and then you have the critic. These are three separate roles that have three separate lanes or three separate rules. And I feel like, at least for myself, sometimes they're all of them at one time. Oh my God, they're all rushing in, right? They all want to be in the room. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, everybody has to wait their turn. Like, because it's not fair to me as the, the one in the middle of all these identities the one who is the the maker, the one who is trying to just like get an idea out into the world. Yes. And no use battering it before it even has a chance to, you know, why smother a fledgling idea with criticism? Yeah, no need to be doing that. Like life will do that enough. Creating has to be the safe space. You know, when I'm teaching or trying to teach people, I'm like, anything is possible in here. Like don't self-censor yourself. And I think it's absolutely true that we are our own worst critic. Before you even get an idea out of your brain, if you let the critic in, then it's like, well, well, I don't know why you're going to do that because uh, that's not going to be no good. And you just got to battle back. You got to be like, nope, not today. <laughs> nope, you not know? today. Like, it's not your turn. <laughs> because all of that is useful. Nothing is all good or all bad. So like the critique, the questioning, the all of that from that side is imperative and necessary yes. to making work. But it cannot come at the expense of the beginning, because the beginning has to be free enough for all possibilities to happen. So the beginning is the freedom. And I'm all, I'm just a huge, huge defender (laughs) of that freedom. (laughs) I appreciate it. I appreciate you defending that freedom. And I appreciate you elevating the importance of beginnings and also embracing the full possibilities of beginnings. Yeah. And the uncertainty of it, it's so much about uncertainty. And so you got to just start to be able to be okay with that, with not having the answers, with there being way more questions than there'll ever be answers. And just being like, okay, this is just the world we're in right now in order to make this thing as good as it could be. And to allow for, I think for me to be influenced, I want to be influenced in those beginning stages by all the things I'm reading or seeing or hearing or whatever. So I guess that's for me, it's, it kind of starts with just a really small kernel of a question or a thought. So for glyphs, the thought has been language. So I've just been in the world of language and thinking about language way before this fabric project came along. So when it came along, I just thought, oh, this is just another place for me to think about language. Absolutely. And I think as we imagine language as a way to articulate deep, intimate aspects of our lives, it's really important for me, at least, to consider that as also part of the creative process. The way that we speak, the way that we talk, the way that we listen, the way that we interrogate, all of that reflects and helps to build toward our wholeness. And that's why it's so important for us to speak life and to speak joy and to speak purpose. And I think that your work does that in so many powerful ways. I thank you because for me, it is sometimes a struggle because being a teacher, you have to be literate in the language that 
the world speaks. So in, in for our case, in our very small realm, it's English. But for me, my first language has always been like art or drawing or symbols or lines. Everyone is translating in order to be able to communicate to the next soul that they see, the next person. So in some way, whether even if we all speak, quote, English or whatever it is, they're just all these ways that language is so like elastic. And if we start to think about it in the realm of just symbols and lines and circles. And so that's kind of what I was doing with glyphs is I was just trying to go all the way back, maybe like pre-language. Pre-written language. Yeah. Like, what could this be? What could this hold? So for me, it was these questions of what could language be if it was its very best or if, if I could convey every emotion I wanted to get across to someone. Because I just don't think our language is wide enough to hold most things that humans encounter. So it was just kind of this dreaming. That's kind of where it started. It started with the dream. Yeah. Of like, what if? What if language could hold everything we experience? That's enough, right? It's just like, whew. And I think I started down that road because I used to listen to this amazing podcast called The Slowdown with, and Tracy K. Smith used to be the host oh, of the that. poet. Yes. That poem, The Declaration, her poem, Declaration, I use it in class often. And what I love about that show was it's only five minutes long every day. And now Ada Lamone took it over, which is another favorite poet of mine. But what they both are so good at is asking questions. So like the first three minutes is just them ruminating on a thing, what would happen? And I think one day Tracy said something like, what would happen if the world was new, if we went all the way back and started again? And that's what kind of got me thinking about what would happen in language too. If we had a clean slate, (laughs) you know, we can start over. (laughs) But questions, it's really just always about questions for me. I really appreciate that so much because what it helps me understand is that you are able to hold in tandem two ideas that lots of people feel are separate, right? One is the world of fine art and the world of commercial art. Another binary that you're able to bring in is written language and visual vocabularies for that language. Yeah, It's just really so special to see that And these are things that I'm able to just recognize just looking at some of your pieces. And that was why the collection Glyphs just spoke to me so loudly. I really felt like it was a one-to-one communication that you designed that entire (laughs) collection just so Lisa Woolfork could see it and be spoken to and addressed and recognized by it. Let's shift to talking about glyphs. Y'all, glyphs, I'm trying to summarize what this meant for me. Just seeing the images. Glyphs is a collection that's coming out from Free Spirit Fabrics. And it is a collection that E has created based on Black women writers. I am someone who studies and teaches and writes about Black women writers. My first class teaching at the University of Virginia 21 years ago, now 22 years ago, was Black women writers. Wow. (laughs) I have taught that class 
for about two decades. Wow. It changes, right? But some things don't change. You have, I have to have her sit. I have to have some short stories from Dorothy West. I have to have, like, there's lots of things that, you know, I'd be also bringing Ann Petrie because they don't really know a lot about her. All of these different artists, Tayari Jones, like so many different. I do contemporary and as well as earlier, mostly early 20th century. Gwendolyn Brooks, all of these folks that really, I think, have timeless, essential messages. Yes. There's a scholar whose work that I'm reading and we're using in class, Kevin Kwashi. He does a Black feminist analysis of language and vocabulary. And he has this book on quiet, the sovereignty of quiet. In that book, he talks about Gwendolyn Brooks' Maud Martha. Now, Maud Martha is a book that goes in and out of print a lot. It's so unique and so beautiful. There's no one like that character that Gwendolyn Brooks created in Maud Martha. For me to have such a deep and intimate connection to Black women writers from my academic and intellectual labor, and then to see it as someone who created and convened Black Women's Stitch as an organization to center Black women in sewing that Black Women's Stitch is a sewing group where Black Lives Matter. It's a way to kind of convene and pull in Black women. And the Stitch Please podcast does the same thing. We've got, you know, now like 120 episodes all talking with Black women who are doing something in sewing. To see both of these worlds come together in that collection, for me, felt like a gift just for me. So thank you so much for my fabric collection. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. It's like it found its perfect person, which is such a gift even for me because you're just like, oh yeah, somebody needed that, you know? And that's like so cool. Absolutely. And I tell folks all the time, you know, and this happens, I think, with my own organizing work as well. I do, you know, anti-racist organizing. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Someone was waiting for me to start Black Women Stitch. Somebody was waiting for a podcast that they could listen to Black women talk about sewing. Yeah. I'm not saying this is like Nobel Prize worthy, but it appeals and speaks to people who appreciate this. All it has to do is exist. That's the thing I always tell my students. I'm like, everything does not have to be a perfect thing. Because if you're waiting for those moments, then nothing will be made. Nothing will be created. And you can't get to perfect if that's where you're trying to go. I mean, that's not an interest of mine, but you can't get there if you're not making all of these mistakes along the way or just putting things out there into the world. So like, yeah, you had to make this in order for all these other things to to manifest. I love that idea that it just has to exist. It doesn't have to be the number one. It doesn't have to be a perfect 10. It doesn't have to be popular. It doesn't have to be, you know, (laughs) widely received. It it just has to be made. (laughs) It just has to be made. It has to exist. Because if it doesn't exist, how is anyone going to find it? And how will you get to the next thing? Selfishly, as a maker, you have to make a thing to get to the next thing. There's no skipping. Tell us about the collection. How many fabrics are in it and who are the writers? There are 16 different patterns. The writers were Nella Larson, Phyllis Wheatley. So Phyllis was the one who kind of started. I started there just because I needed a spot to start and work down. All of this was happening organically. So it's not like it's not constructed in this way, you know. So I was just thinking about language and language propelled the prints. As I was thinking about language more and more, I kept thinking to myself, well, what is the beginning of my literacy or what is the beginning of my language? Again, it's like the question of, well, if I'm thinking about language in this macro way and then I'm thinking about language in this micro way, that's what got me to 
the women because I said, oh, well, if it's the beginning of my understandings of what what is possible of language, then it has to be Toni Morrison. It has to be Maya Angelou. It has to be Octavia Butler. You know, so then I think, oh, okay, well, then maybe they should be a part of this. So then that's when like I had to then invite them and say, oh, okay, well, how do I nod to these women? So for me, in the beginning, it was it wasn't even going to be I was just nodding for myself. Like I just wanted them to be a part of it. That's why their names were just on it, you know, but it's just become this thing. What people like you have been so interested. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad. So then it's been more than I've been able to talk about that. But really, it was just this personal bridging of like what language does to someone like me, an artist that then became someone so interested in writing because my family were such readers. It's all those things. It's also, of course, Lorraine Hansberry, Maya Angelou, Audre Lorde, Lucille Clifton, person for me, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Dorothy West, Anne Petrie, Jesse Redmond Fawcett and Gwendolyn Brooks. Oh, and Georgia Douglas Brown. So a few of these people I didn't know. So I'm like looking them up and then I'm getting so excited because then I'm like, oh, well, she wrote Heart of a Woman. And, you know, sometimes it's written that that's where Maya Angelou got the name of that part of her autobiography. And then so then you see the connections between these women and these generations, which is what I was trying to do by connecting me to these generations, just in terms of language and how it's used. That's a long and beautiful answer. And can I tell you, it is taking all that I can do not to jump up and down right now and go grab my books, okay? I'm looking at Ann Petrie right now. I am looking at Octavia Butler right now. Like, yeah. it's less than 10 feet from me. And my dissertation was on Octavia Butler. My story of Octavia is so... I just saw this show at the Oakland Museum about Afrofuturism. And there's this beautiful picture of her. There's something about her, like, I won't read all the books. Why is that? I don't want to have a world where there's not another one. But here's the thing. You never land in the same place twice. If you read Sula now and you read Sula in high school, your reading of Sula in high school is so different. So funny you say that because Tony was the one where I think she was the light bulb moment for me when I was a kid. I remember this moment of read, because like I said, I was of a family of readers. So reading was just like, we just did it all the time. But I remember being 14 on a bus with my best friend next to me. We were in the Girl Scouts and we were going to this like ski trip or something odd. It was a very different thing. And I was reading Beloved. And that was the moment, like the light bulb that happened where I was like, oh, Of course, I didn't have the language for it then, but I was like, oh, this is what language can do. Like, this is what a story could be, you know, because you can read, you read all sorts of books as a kid, but you're like, wait a minute, this is different. (laughs) There's something different happening here. And I think that was the moment where I was like, well, just forever hooked on reading, but also just on the possibilities that could happen within books. And that's why, well, of course, in all these women just helped fuel that. Black Women Stitch and the Stitch Please podcast are happy to announce that we have another way to connect with our community. In addition to the IG Lives that we do every Thursday at 3 p.m., we also now have a club on Clubhouse. That's right, friends. They done messed up and given me the chance to have a club. 
Follow Black Women Stitch on Instagram and now on Clubhouse Thursdays at 3 p.m. on Instagram and 3.45 p.m. on Clubhouse Eastern Standard Time. And we'll help you get your stitch together. And so when you said you started with, with Phyllis, when you think about the beginning of language, when you think about Phyllis Wheatley, I was just reading about her. I think this was in Kwashi, the book I was just telling you about. Oh, okay. And he was talking about June Jordan's poem about Phyllis Wheatley. You know that one where it was impossible and she was the first, the idea of that we know that Phyllis Wheatley's name came from the slave ship that brought her to America and that she was purchased as a seven-year-old and they didn't know she was seven. They just guessed because of the state of her teeth. That when she did learn language, which she did, uh, she mastered English and wrote poetry, she had to be examined by, was it a jury of 12 Boston men to attest, she had to swear and attest that she had written these poems. She had to answer questions. All of these things, we think about the beginning of Black literacy, of Black language and what it was for and how it became contested. Just to kind of honor Phyllis, to honor this child who became, in some ways, the mother of African-American literature. And it's funny because that fabric is the one where it's just when I made it. You want me to show you? Yes, I do. Okay. It's a drawing that is just a bunch of brush strokes over and over and over. And again, like some of this comes after. That's why I want people to understand, like it's not like you wake up and this entire idea is fully baked as you're working and as you're thinking. But just when you said that, I'm like, whoa. So like this is the drawing of Phyllis, which literally is just hundreds of little individual brush strokes over and over and over and over. And I, when you said that, I was like, oh, those are all the people that she influenced. She's the beginning. And you know, there are so many ways you can look at that. Because one thing, another thing with um, in the Kwashi again, he talks about the power of the ditto, D-I-T-T-O, the ditto mark, right? Because what he's saying, he's making an argument about some of the violences, the anti-Black violence that happens through captivity, bondage, and enslavement. And I think there's another book that you might be interested in, In the Wake by Christina Sharp. I bought it. I have not read it yet. Okay, so <laughs> Kwashi spends a lot of time talking about the apostrophe and punctuation and the grammar of American racism. This is something that Hortense Spillers discusses as well. But there's something about the way sometimes that Black suffering got reduced to marks on paper. You know, that this ditto repeat repeat. Yeah. You know, this person goes on the block. This person goes on the block. Ditto, 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 ditto. This kind of endless repetition. And so to see some of the archives of the Middle Passage, as well as what happens when you put that brush in your own hand. Yeah. When you put that pen in your own hand, what are you going to write your way out of? And that's what Phyllis did that she took from the most abject position you could possibly be in, a child who was captured and had her whole life upended, but still managed to create, still managed to write, still managed to build what would become a legacy. The beginning of language in this country. So it's almost like she had to be the translator from the language she knew to this new language and then translate that down all these people that would be doing the same thing for the rest of their lives, translating. Listen, I feel like when I look at your Glyphs collection, those 16 pieces, that is not only a fabric collection, it is a syllabus. 
And by that, I mean, it is an invitation to explore. It is an invitation to create. It is an invitation to honor the creation of those Black women writers from so many different eras and times. It just feels so beautiful and so generous. And I cannot wait to make myself a Zora Neale Hurston blouse. So listen, y'all, if you are not a Patreon subscriber, first of all, why are you not? You don't have, there's no levels. You can just, you can be a patron at any level, just $2 a month. But listen, and I think you did. At one point you had all the images and I was scanning them and I didn't know who was what. But when I saw that one, I was like, that's Zora. Wow. That is Zora. Because when she was a child, her mother told her that she should jump at the sun. And so when I see that bright white light is the sun and those bounces look like somebody jumping on them. That's what it looked like to me. So what did you think when you created that? Did you start there? How did you begin with that image? So much of these marks, because they're very much just marks on paper, were about me exploring. So there, you know, because that's the thing. So there's the art side of the brain that is really just exploring an idea about like a mark or about movement. Yes. Then I was layering that, like trying to figure out, well, what would this be if this was language? Like if this was... Whose is that? So this was the beginning of what would be Gwendolyn. This one is on brown paper, but the Gwendolyn one ended up being on white. So the beginning was really about shapes and movement and what would happen if I could substitute... (laughs) It was so weird in my head. I was like, what if I could substitute letters for these symbols? Almost like this hieroglyphic kind of action. So I wasn't so much thinking like Zora at that moment. I was thinking a movement, a jump, you know, an action... Yes. That is is propelling. So then when I got to the point of like, who will these people be or who will own this pattern? I thought of Zora because of those things, because of propulsion, because of movement. And it can happen in the weirdest way. It's not like it's a fully formed thing. Like when I remember their eyes were watching God, I remember these certain scenes. Yes. And so much of it has to do with water. And so I just remember feeling the feeling while reading it of being propelled or being pushed. That's what it was for me. So sometimes it's just a feeling in a tiny part of something I've read. For like I said, Jesse, remember I was like, I'm I'm so like in the Jesse Redmond closet right now. So for Jesse, I hadn't read any of her stuff then. So I didn't have that same connection that I had, say, with a Tony. That's what I'm like, wow, I wish I, and now I need to go back and make a whole thing about Jesse Fawcett just because like she's amazing. And I had no idea. She basically did what Toni Morrison did decades later at Random House, but for a huge group of Black artists, because when she was the editor of The Crisis, for almost 10 years, she was the editor of this amazing magazine for the NAACP. I mean, you think, so here Here I am with questions again. I'm like, well, would there have been a Claude McKay without her? Would there have been a County Cullen without her? Would there have been a Langston Hughes? Because she was the gate opener. And I just think people like that are so interesting to me, like the quiet people behind the scenes. I just got Plum Bun because I wanted to read that. And I got There is Confusion. Yes! <laughs> When you showed the Gwendolyn Brooks, the basis of the Gwendolyn Brooks, yeah. is that meant to be dandelions? Because that's what I see. Ooh. So listen. Tell me. Okay, so Maud Martha, which is Gwendolyn Brooks's only novella. I haven't read that. You will love it. You're welcome. 
By the time you get to page 30, you're going to be emailing me. That's one of those ones. It's been on my list forever. Listen, this is not a spoiler. It's a series of the ordinary life of an ordinary Black girl growing up into womanhood. Lots of vignettes, the detail. You can read the whole book in an hour. It begins with talking about, she said, what she loved. She loved painted music. She loved dandelions. For in that, she thought she saw a picture of herself. It comforted her to know that what could be common could also be a flower and that a common beauty was as easy to love as a thing of breathtaking extraordinariness. Yes. And it's a way to kind of open the door to seeing herself in nature, seeing herself as a dandelion. She called them yellow jewels for every day. So many things sometimes are just not even in our control. Like there are these transmissions coming from something else. So you must have told me that in another life. Maybe I did. I talk about this a lot with my students about ordinary and common. And a lot of them think of this as negative. No. Oh, they absolutely do. These are very high achieving students whose whole goal in life is to be extraordinary. And then they come to college and they're they're surrounded by extraordinary people. And I'm like, okay, yes, all of you are extraordinary, but you're also, extraordinary is common here. So you need to stop thinking of common and ordinary as something that is negative or beneath you. Most people live their lives, and this is in the book too, most people live their lives from day to day without anything extraordinary happening. You might get some rip-roaring tragedy. She uses the phrase rip-roaring tragedy, but that is rare. It's such a beautiful, quiet book. I'm so excited for you to read this and get inspired and make a whole other collection because I feel like 16 sounds like a lot. However, there are so many. I mean, you've got Audre Lorde and I see Lorde in some of your other prints. I think I was thinking about the one that says you can be more deliberate. Yeah, well, this is Audrey. This is the Audrey print. Because <laughs> I think I just felt that one needed to be like just full of abandon. Yes, the erotic as power. And one of my favorite quotes from her is, I am deliberate and afraid of nothing. And I love that word deliberate. And that's why, yeah, when I was thinking about, well, this was a whole other project, the questions project. That's where that question came, you know, like it came from the thought of that, like, how can I be more deliberate? Because in that is about being really, really conscious of the choice that you make or just having a lot of thought and consideration, you know, all those things that seem like it would come in abundance, but it really doesn't. I think, you know, a lot of times we don't make deliberate choices and deliberate thoughts about like the things that we do or make or say. So yeah, that's definitely an Audrey thought (laughs) comes from her. It's just so beautiful. And I am so excited about the all of it. I absolutely am. I'm excited about the doors that you have opened by creating this project. And for this one, it was really imperative to me when I was picking these ladies to embody these works that I did want them all to be from generations that were past. Because again, this was about pre-language for me. So in my head, I had this thought of, wow, you know, well, then the, the next set of language could happen with the people that I love to read now, you know, like Araceli Skirmai and Tracy K. Smith and all of these women and Zadie Smith. And so I just kept thinking this thing would roll and roll and roll. But I mean, just to warn people, like the next collection won't be that. But I think that somewhere that will happen. You know how sometimes there are projects that kind of happen personally and then projects that happen in the public. So 
that one might be a personal one. I can, of course, share with you. I'd absolutely love I'm like, I'm already seeing Tracy's and like the redaction. That's what I, I think about her so much with the politics of the art of redaction. Because one of my favorite poems by her is Declaration. And what she does is take the Declaration of Independence and she does the erasure method to emphasize those aspects of the Declaration of Independence that directly apply to Black life, but were completely overlooked in the creating of the Declaration. It's just so beautiful. I do talk about that in class a lot. Just that idea of the erasure poem. I mean, I think that's so beautiful that you are talking about that in class because, I mean, this is my teacher brain going, but like, this is such a a wonderful tool to use in art making as well, like in writing and in art, the idea of to have something fully. And then what would you take away? Because that starts to beg the questions of what was left out and what what was put in and, you know, all of those things about who's telling the story. And then what would I leave out versus what you'd leave out? Or what would I put in versus what you'd put in? Which are huge questions, I think, for any kind of artist slash writer. But, oh, I wanted to show you Tony. Yes, please. <gasps> oh, my gosh. This is one of my favorites. And it's just because it's like this kind of embodies freedom. And the way that Tony writes, I think, is just filled with all I can ever think of is possibility as a word, you know, because there is so much precision and so much just pure like skill yes. in the way she writes, but it never feels like she's closing you off or closing a door. It's just filled with this freedom that you can then interpret that you you're coming to this you need to come to this with something and you are free also to be in this you know so when so I just knew she was going to be that one that was one of the very few that I knew like once we had picked the 16 like that was the one I knew immediately that that had to be her because these marks, again, like they're not even about Tony per se. These marks were about seeing starlings, these murmurations of starlings in the sky oh. during the lockdown. And I actually saw them. I, I thought that was something I'd never see in real life. You know, they always happens in like Northern Europe or where, you know, like I'm always. And it happened like in Northern California. I was in a mall. You know, I drove like an hour to stand in the parking lot of a mall because everyone had said like, this is where they come every day at 5 p.m. So all these people were standing in this this mall parking lot and it's locked down. So everyone's far away from each other and we're all just like looking up, waiting. And it was like the most amazing lived experience because we're waiting for actual for life to almost give us this show. And, you know, and it may or may not happen. And here we are like waiting for this possibility. And then here they come. And for almost like an hour, they literally give us this show that I will never forget these birds and and what they did in that sky and this blue sky, this bright blue sky. And then these hundreds of millions or thousands of starlings. So anyway, that's freedom. I mean, if that's not freedom, I don't know what is. I can even see traces of Beloved, the repetition. I can see traces of Sula as a character who is so bold. Or even the end of Song of Solomon. Yes, yes. Why at each other. Yeah, you know, like if you surrender to the air, like all those things where I was just like, this is Tony 100%. (laughs) I hope she would like it. (laughs) Wow. This is so incredible. I want to know, like, what's next for you? Where can people, I know we can find you and other, but what is next for you? I mean, is it possible for you to even say that right now? I have finished the second collection for 
free spirit already. No gun. And so that one is in kind of in their hands now where they start to figure out, I guess, actual production of it or whatever. All I can say is that it is completely different. It's like a 180. Okay. <laughs> in terms of color, in terms of it's, you know, it's going to be so bright and so almost like uh, vibrant in, in a completely different way than Glyphs was because I really loved the neutral aspect of this, which was very different for me too, by the way. Like I never really work in just neutrals, but there was something about 2020. <laughs> there was something about like where we were. Yes. And there's something about to me about beginnings. Yes. About that need to stay in these almost in these binaries so that then again, the possibilities can go forth. So like, you know, like when you're just learning in design or whatever, uh, you're just learning in even in art, we always make people stay in black and white in the beginning because we say like, if it can work in black and white, it's going to work in anything, right? So like, that's your litmus test. So for me, it, it made sense that these marks, if they were going to be beginnings, if they were going to be like almost pre-language, they needed to be in this realm of black and white. So now like the next one's just like, you know, crazy colors. All colors. So that's what's, that's what's next on the fabric front. And then hopefully some really fun collaborations with me and Sarah, who you had on the show. Yes. My cousin. And we're going to try to like, see how these things can go together. Cause she's this amazing quilt maker. And oh my gosh. Yes. And I know nothing about that part of it. You know, I'm just about like the making of the patterns and the prints. So hopefully there'll be some fun collaborations. With, I think with so. And I would just imagine that your shared ancestor, Lavinia, is looking down on y'all and saying, yes, this is yes. Keep going. <laughs> yes, yes. Right, right, right. I was going to ask you this. This is a question I'm going to start asking folks in interviews. The, the slogan for Black for the Stitch Please podcast is get your stitch together. Right. We'll help you get your stitch together. If you were going to help someone get their stitch together, someone in our listening, what would you tell them to help them get their stitch together? What kind of advice, life advice, art advice, any kind of advice that you might have to help somebody get their stitch together? I guess I would ask them to sit in the uncertainty much longer than they do. So for whatever amount of comfort you have in that realm, I'd ask you to sit just a little longer in that. So before you make the decision or before you put pen to paper or whatever the thing is that's going to come next, before you've made the decision that you think shouldn't be changed, what could come from leaving that door open just a little longer? Because I think that that is, if we could do that for each other in terms of how we communicate and how we understand each other, but also in our, in our making, you know, I'm really interested in that in my making. Like if I know how something's going to turn out, then maybe I shouldn't be doing it that way. You know, maybe I should be trying to think about a way that, you know, not that all things you've done before are, it's not about bad or right or wrong, but it's just about like what would happen in those open liminal spaces. I think those are like the places where we could find like a lot, a lot of joy and a lot of fun. And with that, Yvonne, this has been so much fun. I am hoping that this is not our last conversation. I'm hoping that we will get a chance to talk again, but I am so grateful to be with you on today and to talk about this fantastic collection, Glyphs from Free Spirit. Y'all check it out. Look at your local quilt shops. If they don't have them at your brick and mortar store, there are some that will have it online that you can order it from. So 
Check out Gliss and you can find Ebond on her wonderful website, Creative Book. She's got some wonderful classes there, including a 31-day art practice. There's a lot of great things that you can find for Ebond and we'll put all that in the show notes. And E, thank you. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Thank you.